Morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Excited about this great passage in Philippians chapter 2. Before we continue, let's go to the Lord again and pray together. Lord Jesus, when we come to familiar passages like this one for some of us, we can move through the familiar language quickly. And we want to slow down this morning and we want to see you high and lifted up through your own humiliation and death. So Spirit, we pray that you would come, that you would strengthen us through your word, that you would use me as a vessel to help us see Christ clearly in your word, Would you guide our time now? Would you strengthen us according to your truth? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the first and second century in the Roman Empire, Christians irritated their Roman neighbors. And I don't mean they talked too much. I mean they lived according to a kingdom that they could not see and that that future kingdom impacted the way that they lived. And so those first and second century brothers and sisters, they rejected the sexual ethic of the day. They took in abandoned infants from the streets. They cared for plague victims while their Roman neighbors ran. But they stayed and they cared for the sick and they cared for the dying. Why did they do this? Because they were living according to a kingdom that was coming, a kingdom that they couldn't yet see. And as we look through church history, we see a church that is persistently an irritant in culture, consistently being a pebble in the shoe of our non-Christian friends and neighbors, even in our own context. While it's true that some Christians owned slaves and defended slavery, it is also true that Christians fought to end the slave trade and to end slavery itself. Just this week, I learned that Charles Spurgeon preached so often and so passionately against slavery and against the slave trade that people began to edit his sermons, edit that material out of his sermons. The church should always be an outlier in any culture where it exists. Jesus' people are always eccentric and odd and different. A church family should be peculiar and set apart and strange in culture. Jesus has made us aliens and pilgrims and sojourners in this world. He says in John 14 through 16, we looked at this, that, that he, we've been called out of the world but left in the world in order to make Christ known in the world. We're different from the world. In other words, the church is a kingdom outpost. Think about what an outpost is. An outpost is a part of an empire that's geographically separated from that empire. It stands alone. It sits on its own, but it's part of another empire. That's what the church is. We are those who have been made alive in Christ. Our citizenship right now is in heaven for all of us who are alive in Christ. But we sit here as an outpost to these neighbors and these friends and these children to show them the hope of the gospel. The main idea this morning is that as an outpost, the church displays the realities of that future kingdom. 
We live now in a way that shows our neighbors what this coming kingdom will be like when Jesus returns. Now, Paul is under pressure. He knows the church in Philippi is under pressure. And Philippian endurance requires kingdom living. They must hold the line together as an outpost, displaying the realities of that future coming kingdom. Because Jesus will return, and when he does, the things that are on display in shadowy, imperfect form in the church now will be the reality of our eternal future. And Paul gives the Philippians four attitudes, four things that they can do to live out that future kingdom now, to live as an outpost of that kingdom. The first in verses 1 through 2 is to fight for unity. Fight for unity. Christians must draw together because of the external pressures we face in the world. Hardships, disease, and also opposition. But it's not the external pressure that provides the power source for our unity. Paul begins by making it clear that it is our common experience of God's grace that empowers us to be and live united. Look at how Paul begins in chapter 2, verse 1 of Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now Paul reveals his bias in the way that he opens this chapter. There is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort from his love. There is fellowship with the Spirit. There is affection and sympathy. And he's going to use that to make a point about unity. He's answering his own question. First, there is encouragement in Christ. This word encouragement is a call for help. It's a request for aid. And Paul asked the Philippians, is there encouragement in Christ? Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were those who needed to be reconciled, and in Christ we've been reconciled. Our greatest need to be right with God, to be reconciled to Him, has been given to us, provided to us by Christ. Is there encouragement in Christ? Paul asked the Philippians. And then he says, there is in comfort and consolation from God's love. God's love should persuade us and convince us. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says at the end of verse 4, in love God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The first domino to fall in our relationship with God was his love. It's his love that causes God to predestine us for adoption through faith in Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. Is there any comfort from God's love? Or the famous Romans 8.35, where Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. We don't earn God's love. We don't maintain God's love. He just loves us. 
He loves us in Christ. And there is great comfort and consolation in that. And then he says there is participation and fellowship in the Spirit. There is. We have fellowship with God in his Spirit. Jesus promises that the Spirit will come. And it will be advantageous to the disciples that the Spirit will come. This is the sign of the church age. No longer is God dwelling powerfully in the camp with his people. Now God is dwelling inside of his people through the, through the presence of his spirit. And so the early church, while they're laid low under persecution in Jerusalem, gather together and they pray this prayer. And when they had prayed, verse 31, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There is fellowship with the Spirit. The church prayed for boldness and the Spirit answered that prayer and provided the boldness they needed to proclaim the gospel with clarity in Jerusalem. This is what the Holy Spirit does. We fellowship with him. He writes the Bible through the apostles and the prophets. And he takes the truth of his word and he applies it to our hearts so that when we're afraid, he brings comfort. When we need hope, he brings strength. This is what the Spirit does. He's near to us. He sanctifies us. He guides us. He is a rock higher than we. We can turn to him in trouble. And then Paul says, there is affection and sympathy in God's love. The Philippians face pressure. Paul faces pressure. And in Matthew 11, we read of this kind of affection and sympathy where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul says, Philippians, is there any affection in Christ? Is there any sympathy in Christ? Remember the father of the prodigal son. If you're wondering if there is affection and comfort in God, think of Jesus' story about the prodigal. If you're struggling with whether or not God is harsh, with whether or not he's fickle and unpredictable, he's not. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, James 5. He is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1. Paul wants the Philippians to remember that in Christ there is affection and sympathy for his people. That's what is the basis for their unity. Our common experience of God's grace is the power for our unity. Yes, we need to pull together in light of the afflictions and hardships and opposition in this world. But when opposition lets up, what then is the cause for our unity? It's our common experience of God's grace. We were not reconciled and now we are reconciled. We are recipients of God's love. We fellowship with his spirit. And therefore, Paul says, fight for unity. Look at verse 2. Complete or fulfill my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Be of the same mind. If it's true 
that the Bible is our source of authority. If that's true, then the church needs to fight for the same mind. Where God's word is clear, we want to think as one. Where God's word leaves room for disagreement, we want to give one another the freedom to think about our conscience and to let God's word guide our conscience. We want to strive to be of one mind where the God's word is clear. Paul says, have the same love. We've each been loved by Christ in the same way and we turn to love others just as we have been loved. And he says, be in full accord, literally united in soul, united in purpose. We have the same drive. We have the same intent. We have the same objective. We're like conjoined twins as his people. We're knit together. We have a joint purpose. As I was thinking about this point this week, my mind came back to our elders Elders have split over the last two years in many churches. Churches have divided over some of the issues that we've been facing. And I want you to know I've watched our elders over the last three years, and they have provided us an example of this particular point. In your elders, you have a group of bold, intelligent, capable men. And I've watched them wrestle over how to shepherd individual members through difficult things. I've watched them think carefully about doctrinal matters. I've watched them labor over practical leadership decisions for the sake of this body. And our meetings are full of thoughtful, passionate discussions about how to apply God's word to the decision that lays before us. But there is an anchor that holds the middle. And that anchor is a common commitment to one another, a commitment to this body, a commitment to Christ, a commitment to our common experience as brothers and as sisters in Christ. And we are still swimming in divisive waters. And the call this morning from Paul, the first one is to fight for unity. It doesn't come easy. We need to work for it. So I want to call us to obedience to this text this morning. To fight to be of one mind. Where the Bible is clear, let's think with one mind. Where the Bible leaves room, let's give one another room to think differently. And to fight to demonstrate the same love. As those who have been loved unconditionally by Christ, let's turn and love one another in that same way. And then Paul says, fight to be of one accord. Don't let Satan divide us. Don't let the enemy have a foothold between us. And don't let your own sin provide division in the body. Be someone who's easy to correct. Someone who welcomes correction. Someone who thanks the person who's risked something to come and speak the truth in love. The world around us constructs unity based on sameness. But the gospel takes people with endless differences and unites them around this kingdom that we cannot see. We've been born again to a living hope. And the church is an outpost, a united outpost of that future kingdom where one day we will gather together with Christ the bridegroom. One bride, one family, one building, one flock together. Gathered by God from every tribe and tongue and nation. So Paul says, Philippians, fight for unity. And then secondly, in verses 3 through 4, pursue the good of others. Look at verses 3 through 4. Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or substantial than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The very air we breathe is filled with self-regard and self-interest. Everywhere we turn, someone tells us to be true to ourselves. It's been a long day. Treat yourself. Or the world should bend to your sense of who you are and who you long to be. All of life around us is filtered as self as the reference point. What do I want? How do I feel? What do I think? How does this affect me? We've put ourselves on the throne functionally of our lives, and therefore God and others simply exist to meet our needs. But if the church is an outpost of the coming kingdom, then there's a call by Paul to rebel against the idol of self. We want to be subversive on this point. We want to be adjutants in culture. We want to be a a pebble in the shoe of our neighbors to say, life doesn't need to revolve around the self. Instead, Paul says, don't be driven. Don't be motivated by selfish ambition or conceit, vain glory or empty pride. Don't be driven by those things. Don't be driven primarily by what you want out of life. Instead, in humility, count or esteem or consider others more significant than yourself. Paul says, don't just look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Now, humility, according to the Bible, is simply a modesty of mind. We're thinking lowly of ourselves. We're thinking much of God. We're thinking much of other people. We're thinking less of ourselves. Instead of The gospel transforms us from a selfish person to an other-centered person. Instead of the world revolving around me, the world begins to revolve around God and my desire to serve and love others well. So kids, if humility is driving you, when you pick out a movie, for example, you're not thinking primarily about what you want in that moment, what movie you desperately want to see. You're thinking about God and what would bring delight to his heart. Which of these movies would he be more pleased with? Or you're thinking about your brother and whether or not this movie will scare your brother. Or you're thinking about your friend and whether or not they find Star Wars boring. And what are you doing in these situations? You're thinking less about yourself. You're thinking more about what would please God and what would serve others. That's what Paul has in mind here. Training yourself to not think primarily about what you want but about what would bring God delight and what would serve others. Retired Christians, our world urges you to spend your life preparing for a relaxing retirement. Work hard so you can play hard. Now, our energy does seem to wane as we age and our bodies begin to wear out. So there is a sense in which we need to prepare responsibly for the future. But I want to call on us this morning to reject the self-focused, self-interested vision of our 70s and 80s that the world provides for us. God's grace has ushered us into a new vision for these decades. And in humility, we can make others more significant than ourselves. In humility, we can look to the interests of others, not just our own interests. And so don't spend these decades primarily on yourself. 
Don't spend these decades primarily on your leisure. Instead, be an outpost of the future kingdom. Younger brothers and sisters need you to devote yourselves to us. We need you to disciple us. We need your perspective on the job challenge that feels so large to us. But your life experience will help us put that in perspective. We need you to love our children because we live far away from our own parents. We need you to confront the harshness you see in our tones towards our spouses. We need you to challenge us when we work too many hours and are in danger of neglecting our children. We need you to lead at church. We need, you, we need to see your courageous and sacrificial leadership in this body. We need to watch you endure cancer treatment, hoping in Christ alone. We need to watch you read the Bible and treasure Christ in his word. We need to hear you pray. We need to hear you groaning for faithfulness until the very end. And as I turned this point of application over in my heart this week, I thought of more and more of you who are exemplifying this in our body. I mean it. Everywhere I look, I thought of examples of members in their 70s and 80s who are pouring themselves out for the next generation, who are modeling this very thing. Our world insists that we put ourselves on the throne and force everyone else in our lives to revolve around us. And I want to call on you to press on with joy because your reward is near. The gospel transforms us. The gospel empowers us to put God on the throne and to think about the good of others before we think about our own good. And when our driving motivation is to love God and to love people with humility, we show the world another way to live. We serve as an outpost of that future kingdom where God will be on the throne and love will be the order of the day. So be subversive in your love of others. Let's be an outpost of the coming kingdom of Jesus in this world. But listen, we don't do this in our own strength, which is where Paul turns next. In verses 5 through 8, he calls on us to have the same mind as Christ. He calls on us to imitate Jesus, to imitate the humble servant Jesus. Look at verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So notice, this mind can be yours in Christ. He gives it to us. He empowers us to do this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man. So what we have before us is a breathtaking example of humility. What does Paul say specifically about Jesus? He says that Jesus was in the form of God. He was the exact representation of God. He says in John 10, I and the Father are one. He is equal to God the Father in all his attributes. Jesus is all the things that God is. Anytime you see a description of God in the Word, Jesus is those things too. He's eternal. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere, omnipresent. He's completely faithful. He's totally righteous. He's all of these things. Yet, he doesn't grasp this honor. He doesn't desperately seize these privileges. He's willing to steward them 
for the sake of the Father's will. And that's what we find next, where Paul says that he emptied himself. Now, how does he empty himself? Does he, does he give up his divinity? Does he give up this nature? No, he empties by taking on human form. This is emptying by addition. How's that for new math? He becomes a servant. He doesn't stop being his divine nature, his divine self. He takes on a second nature, that is human form. He's born in the likeness of man. He's very God and he's very man. He's those two things at the same time. Jesus maintains all that it is to be God and at the same time, he takes on what it is to be human. This is a mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. But why does he do it? Why doesn't he just stay fully God? Why does he also become man? Well, he wants to fulfill the work that God had in mind. There are a people, there is a people spread out among all nations whom God wants to call to himself. And so Jesus becomes man to fulfill this work. Look at verse 8. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how Jesus accomplishes the work of the Father. He executes a unique function within the Godhead, within Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus takes on a unique role. And doing so does not diminish, it does not subtract from his divine nature. He simply pursues the unique work that God the Father had instructed him to do, and he does it with gladness. But Jesus' humility leads him to obey the Father all the way to death, even death on a cross. And in dying, this is what Jesus accomplishes. In dying, Jesus absorbs the penalty of sin. He crushes sin's power. He redeems us from the curse of the law. Jesus takes away the sins of the world. He defeats the forces of darkness. He secures our justification by God. He silences our accuser. He removes the record of our debt. He satisfies the wrath of God against us. He reconciles us to the Father. He throws open the presence of God to us. He ensures our adoption as his sons and daughters. And then he sends his spirit to live inside the church. Do you see what the humility of Jesus has accomplished for us? Do you see what his obedience has wrought for his people? And Paul says, imitate this. Imitate Jesus. You see what he's accomplished through his humble death. Imitate that. Follow his example. Let his humility warm your heart. And as the Spirit gives you power, pursue the same kind of of humility. Let radical love define your thinking toward others. Imitate the humble servant. In a world that longs to win, be willing to lose, if that's what will reveal Christ. Be willing to endure all things. Take up your cross. Turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. 
assume endless hardships, bear up under tremendous suffering, resist sin though it cost you, risk relationships in order to proclaim the gospel, be willing even to lay down your life for the sake of this Jesus who died for us. Paul says, have the same mind in yourselves, brothers and sisters, which is yours in Christ. Now, of course, the obedient death of Jesus is not the final chapter. That's not all he came to do. In verses 9 through 11, we see the exalted king. And there's a call to begin exalting him even now. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, because of his death, even his death on a cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's in his humiliation that he's exalted. Because that's the work that God sent him to do. And Paul says that God highly exalted him. Not just a little exaltation. Literally, he exalted him beyond measure. Immeasurable exaltation of Jesus by God the Father because of his obedience to death, even death on a cross. And God gives Jesus the name that's above every other name. Jesus is a common name. I remember thinking about this when I was a kid. Jesus is a common name. So it's not just the name. It's not just the letters that spell Jesus. It's what Jesus' name represents. It's what this Jesus accomplished. It's his authority, it's his character, it's fame, it's his reputation, it's what he did. This Jesus did what no other Jesus and no other human being could do. He secured our reconciliation to God. He provided new life to all who would believe and call on his name. And there is power in Jesus' name. When the name of Jesus resounds in the skies on that final day, Every knee should bow. Every knee in heaven should bow. Every knee on the earth should bow. Every knee under the earth should bow. The knees of every human being should collapse under the weight of this glorious Jesus who has made us alive. This Jesus who's defeated the power of sin and Satan and death There's a call to kneel in amazement and gratitude and honor before this king. And not only that, it's not that every knee is falling to the ground. It's that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, that is the anointed one, the promised Messiah, is Lord. He is the self-existent one, the eternal one. He's the promise keeper. He's the all-powerful one. He's the one who abounds in love. Tongues in heaven should confess this reality. Tongues on earth should confess this reality. Even tongues under the earth should confess this. Jesus is Lord of all. All authority has been given to me by the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth 
or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This world lives as if Jesus is not already reigning. The world lives as if Jesus isn't already seated at the right hand of the Father. As if Jesus isn't now praying and interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. This world lives as if Jesus isn't currently preparing a place for us to live with him in his Father's house. This world lives as if Jesus isn't preparing to return for his church, his bride. This world lives as if Jesus hasn't already defeated all of his enemies. This world lives as if Jesus were not the author and judge of righteousness. As if Jesus will not, at his return, judge the living and the dead. This world lives as if Jesus didn't promise that he'd usher those who reject him into everlasting torment. This world lives as if Jesus is not the most awe-inspiring treasure in all of creation and in all of history. This world lives as if Jesus were not the most satisfying source of eternal hope and joy and rest. This world lives as if Jesus were not the fountainhead of eternal blessing. This world lives as if Jesus were not the focal point of unending, everlasting worship. That's how the world lives. But church, we are an outpost of that future kingdom. And we worship him for who he is. Our worship of Jesus in this life reveals what the church will do for all of eternity when Jesus' kingdom finally comes and the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdom of our beloved Lord Jesus. So church family, worship him. Worship him alone each day and worship him corporately each week when we gather. And when we do this, we create a physical place in this world where Christ is worshipped, where Christ is on the throne. We live for him. And when you worship, do it considering all that God has accomplished in Christ. Think with your whole mind as you sing. Feel with all the genuine emotion that God has given you. Sing with your fullest voice. Christ has accomplished our redemption. And our worship is an outpost of the coming kingdom. We reveal the eternal realities that our neighbors can't yet see. So Cherrydale, let's live together as an outpost of the coming kingdom. If we rely on God's grace together then we can show our neighbors, it'll be imperfect, but we can show our neighbors a little bit of what the kingdom will be like. We become a looking glass through which our neighbors can see the eternal realities of the kingdom that is coming. So rebel against this world and live for the next. Fight for unity. Pursue the good of others. Imitate the humble servant and worship the exalted Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the life we have in Christ. We're grateful for the hope that you deliver into this present world. We pray that you would strengthen us by your word, strengthen us by your spirit, 
As we stand and sing now, help us to turn our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand.